1: For 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. It is August, dog days of August. I am technically on vacation, but I have returned to alert you that we are in reruns for this week. Uh, we're coming back at you next week with fresh stuff, but we want to remind you that we have an entire archive of still very relevant interviews and very fantastic interviews um, this week, we're bringing you an interview I did uh, with our very own Nick Bilton, who was the founder of this podcast, Inside the Hive, back in October of last year, a highly relevant, sadly, um, conversation about social media. Uh, Nick has been covering social media for several years. He's written books about it. He did an amazing documentary that was on HBO about influencers and Today, you're going to hear this interview we did really about the power and the dangers of social media. The title of the original podcast is The Only Winning Move is Not to Play. This is a conversation that I think we'll be having, you know, for an entire generation, right? And so this is why this conversation remains relevant um, and why I think you're going to enjoy it. So sit back, enjoy If you're on vacation yourself, this is a good time, a way to relax. Just close your eyes. But if you're driving, keep them open and uh, enjoy this week's podcast. And we'll be back, Emily Jane Fox and I, next week uh, with some fresh interviews for you. Today, very special day, we have back with us right here, the OG, the original host of Inside the Hive Aren't you supposed to
0: curse when you say OG, like the motherfucking OG or like, isn't there supposed to be? I like
1: that you're using the the MF word right off the bat, like, you know, not even giving the listener time to hide the children. (laughs) We are here today. uh, We're going to talk about a specialty of yours, at least as a reporter, social media, something you have covered for years, done documentaries about, written books about. And um, that obviously is in the news right now for reasons we're going to talk about. I just want to start off by telling you a quick confessional anecdote, which is like last weekend. I ran into a friend of mine on the street and uh, we got into a conversation. We were catching up and started to lament, you know, the existence of social media. And especially because we both have kids and you're always trying to like restrain and and censor social media addiction, uh, in your children. And, uh, of course we both felt good about ourselves in that moment. But in the course of the conversation, he also showed me a funny picture of, uh, Bill Clinton and Al Gore from the 1990s. And they were wearing these, uh, jogging outfits that looked really horrible and hilarious. Yes. I've seen those jogging outfits. They have real short shorts on and they're sweaty and they have like big, supersized McDonald's Cokes in their hands. And it just struck me in that moment. Oh, this you know, you get excited when you see a picture like that. And you're like, oh, send that to me. And so he texted it to me. And what did I do? What did I do? Turn around and do. Put it on social motherfucking media. I put it on Twitter. I put it on Twitter. And guess what? It went viral on, on Twitter because of just, I just put some funny thing about, you know, if your kids ever ask you about the 90s, show them this picture. That's and really it went, it blew up all over, all over Twitter. So what did I spend my weekend doing, going to look to see it. It exploding, like as people retweet and like and tweet. And I became just a complete cautionary tale and a hypocrite and all kinds of other things, you know, just in this like singular moment. How many likes and retweets and comments did you get? It got up to about 10,000 likes and like, you know, six or 700 retweets, which is not even barely viral by today's standards of virality. But like, you know, for my little in my little
0: world. And how many people called you? every name in the book on Twitter in response for posting that?
1: Well, it was generally like, uh, it wasn't too toxic, although people were like, that's not the 90s. This is the 90s in a picture of Pearl Jam. Of course. Or whatever. You know, like course. everybody had their own idea of it. And some people said, but, you know, for the record, it was a time of great peace and, uh, you know, great time in the economy and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you get it. I get it. I was not trying to make any comment. I just thought it was a funny picture. However, I did think about this in terms of cigarettes it's like people have made this analogy but it was just like i can't get away i got to take another puff off the cigarette i got to look at this again and it's like if i can't control myself how can i expect my children to control to themselves control like they have yeah. no impulse control
0: anyway yeah so we actually didn't introduce who i was and for listeners that are not uh haven't been listening to the show for i don't know when we started this three four years ago it's Nick Bilton, uh feel free to attack me on Twitter and Instagram and facebook uh but I wrote the book about Twitter, hatching Twitter, which you can get on Amazon. go for it uh and so I've lived this world that you're describing from the from day one. The very first story I ever wrote as a journalist was about Twitter for the New York Times uh and have covered the company ever since the very first i think major magazine feature I wrote for Vanity Fair, or the second one was about Twitter. And so like, I've been living it. But what's really interesting is I have my own little anecdote before we get into the the crux of why I'm here today, uh, is I stopped tweeting during the pandemic. I was like, I don't need this in my life. I don't need these people coming into my living room with me and calling me every name in the book and making me feel bad about myself. I'm not going to tweet anymore. Deleted it from my phone, genuinely stopped looking at it, Would maybe look for like a minute a day on my computer and was just like this is silly I'm, i have no interest and eventually you know people would still tweet stuff about articles i'd written or if they'd written my book or watch my doc or whatever it was and and a friend of mine who worked for the government reached out to me a couple weeks ago and said why haven't you tweeted in a year and i explained you know i just don't need this and he said he's like but you're if you're not going to tweet about you know all of the problems with social media and like help people think about it a little bit like If everyone stops doing this, thinking about this, then you're not helping the conversation. You're just sitting on the sidelines as it's doing all these bad things. You should tweet. And I was like, I just don't want all these people coming after me. I don't feel like dealing with it. It's just such a headache. And he really talked me into it. So the next morning I woke up and I sent a tweet. It was my first tweet in like 10 months and it went viral. And it was about some crypto thing. And the crypto lunatic douches came after me and they were and i texted him like screenshots and he was he was cracking up but it's like we've all been there we've all experienced this and it doesn't bother me anymore it truly honestly doesn't it used to and that definitely is something that came out of me walking away from it for, for nine months but but I, if i were a teenager and dealt with that it would be brutal like the the things that people were saying mm-hmm. like woof it's oh yeah it's a dangerous place it's a dangerous dangerous place it is. And if you don't have a thick skin,
1: uh, which, you know, a lot of people don't, we're professionally yeah. obligated to have a thicker skin. But even then, you can be, uh, you can, you know, if you catch in the wrong moment, you can end up in a Twitter world. Well, yeah. Yeah. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco Have you heard about Mint Mobile? Do you know what it's all about? Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those savings right on to you. I've been using Mint Mobile for weeks, and I've been impressed both by the quality and by the price. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can choose from three, six, or twelve-month plans, and say goodbye to a monthly phone bill. So, to get your new wireless plan for just fifteen bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to
0: mintmobile.com/hive. That's mintmobile.com/hive. Cut your monthly wireless bill to fifteen bucks a month at
1: mintmobile.com/hive. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. And this is really the conversation of the day. I mean, because as people who have paid attention to the news know, there have been uh, some leaks from Facebook to the Wall Street Journal recently that described how uh, they're getting away with all kinds of stuff that is toxic to uh, their customers and toxic to the world and society at large, and they know about it. And they're not telling anyone. It just it, um, it it actually reminded me, and there's one little sort of throwaway line in here in the, about um, Adam Masseri, the the CEO of Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, being asked, I guess, in a you know uh, investor call like about you know what do they know about the impact of the product on teenagers and children. And instead of pointing to internal uh, reports that they had made, yep. internal research that they knew was bad. You know, they point to outside research that was in favorable to them. So right there's, I mean, we we expect these companies almost to be nefarious at this point. You know, they they we see what they're getting away with. We see the destructive outcome of so much of it on misinformation, on impact on teenagers, and yet we
0: don't have a lot of recourse. You know, you know to do much yeah, about it. Yeah, it's what's really interesting is when you look at these companies. There's two aspects to this. The first is that just to put into perspective how wealthy these companies are. If you take the the fan companies, facebook, amazon, alphabet, netflix, apple uh, there you go uh, Apple and google uh, when you take them, their their market cap, combined market cap is I think seven point three trillion dollars, and you throw in Microsoft and you know the next biggest company, it's over ten trillion total that's an astounding astounding amount of of money on hand apple alone has 250 million in cash you know if you add up i uh, um all of the cash these companies have it's it's well over a half a trillion dollars in cash that's literally on hand they're paying tens of millions of dollars a year in lobbying fees they're hiring the former people they were lobbying against you know that that work for these you know jake harney works for amazon doing the the communications used to be at the white house you've got the former heads of the ftc and fcc it's like all working with facebook like and they have just unlimited power and 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 there's nothing that can be done really to stop them congress could do something the problem is that most of congress is full of like 70 and 80 year olds that don't even understand which way to hold their phone up like to you know and so yeah so we're kind of left to the wolves in this regard, and I think that's the first part of this, which is I think really the, the the worrying part. The second part of it is that if you look at the way the these companies operate, what's really interesting is I know a lot of people that work at these companies, and they're good people. Like they're they're just like you and me. They're like nice people. They, you know, they pay their taxes and they like. They donate money to charities and you know they tip their waiters and waitresses and so on. They just have this weird perspective where they only talk, they drink the Kool-Aid and they only talk about and hear the good sides of things. And they believe, they truly do believe that they are on the right side of history. And I, what is so bizarre about that is when you talk to the leaders of these companies, they don't let their kids use the platforms. You know, Mark Zuckerberg would not put his his kids, a toddler, but if if he had a twelve year old, I guarantee there's no world in which she would be she or he would be using Facebook and Instagram uh, or Instagram for kids if it existed. you know, I know so many people who work for these companies who are at the top echelon of them who literally will not let their uh, their kids on the platforms like a, a, a senior Facebook exec will uh, literally unplugs the Wi-Fi routers in their house at night. Uh, um, because they don't trust their teenagers on these platforms, and I think that, that that's really telling to me.
1: Well, and why would they? I mean that this these Facebook uh, leaks, ha- the research that was internal research at Facebook and Instagram, you know one of the uh, one of the headlines on one was we make body image issues worse for one in three girls. Yeah, yep. I mean what? I mean, and there's all kinds of other you know revelations in there, but but even though all this came out. The fact of it is that they knew, yes. right? But the sort of sad thing is we out here in the public, we already knew this. I mean, if you ha- I have a teenage daughter. I have kids who are tweens, you know, and also, and, you know, they're all involved in, in the internet. They're involved in social media, they're, they're, you know, because that's what all the other kids are doing. That's how they connect with their friends and trying to keep them off of it. Is like it's a Sisyphean t- t- task. Yep. Task. I mean, it's it's impossible. Yep. You know, the the pressures are so intense, and the effect is so like a drug addict. It's so clearly like an addiction that it's um it's very upsetting. And so, and just to the, uh, to the teenager again, just to talk first person and from my own experiences, like I've seen how it shapes. Their self-image, how they dress, how they think. It's like the entire culture for teenage girls has congregated into these apps.
0: I think that the que- the question is, and this is where I struggle with the answer, is, you know, if it wasn't for social media, there would, like, unlikely be a Black Lives Matter movement. There'd unlikely be a Me Too movement. There'd, right. You know, there'd unlikely be these these movements that have largely made society better. Um but at the same time maybe there would i mean you know it's like uh, what i think has happened yeah. with right now i don't have so i now have i think i've tweeted four times in the last month it's like a shocking number for me but i will not tweet anything personal and have a conversation like it's it's funny my uh my son we have a 4 year old and he's obsessed with the hamilton soundtrack uh and he yes. wants to go see Hamilton and I like googled it and it's like, y- you should wait till your kids are twelve. But he's like obsessed, he desperately wants to go see Hamilton. And I you know, ten years ago I would have been like, hey, Twitter, what do you think? Should I take my four-year-old to see Hamilton? And now I like I thought about it and I was like, what am I doing? I would be like lambasted and chopped to pieces and sauteed with, you know, some yes. like spicy sauce. Like I'm not asking Twitter yes. that question. <laughs> like um, and yeah. uh and so What has happened, though, is the replacement has become things like groups on iMessages, where groups of friends that I know are not going to cancel me for, like, asking a a dumb question or are not going to say I'm a terrible parent for asking, should I take my four-year-old to see Hamilton, which we're not doing, by the way, although he's very (laughs) sad about it. Uh, But um, so I think that you can still have these social movements that happen that don't necessarily happen out in public. And I wonder if like if what we're seeing right now is the beginning of that transformation where people are using these social platforms less because they realize how bad they are and they're moving to these private platforms. But I don't know if that's going to make anything better or worse, honestly. Right. And when I even when I think about the positive
1: aspects, the Black Lives Matter movement, even before that, it was the Arab Spring, you'll remember, was was also part of this you know, social media revolutions. Uh, it kind of uh, turns these movements like Black Lives Matter into a meme and then the meme travels, but it kind of travels on a, on a pretty shallow yeah. level. I mean, the core of the revolution could have ha- taken place without everybody feeling like they had to do a hashtag somewhere just to sort of signal virtue to people, you know?
0: No, you're completely right. I think it creates this false sense of of protest where, you know, I remember the time where everyone was posting the black square on Instagram to, to say they, you know, did they go and like try to help someone who was in need because of, of who had been harmed? But, you know, it's like, no, they posted a black square and they went about their day and ate at Chaconis and like, it's like, huh? That it's, what has that done? It's, it's, it hasn't done anything, I guess. Maybe it's, Brought more awareness to it, but it's at the end of the day, I don't think it really feels like it's it's that powerful to do that. I, I think that the other thing is like when you go back to the teenage girls thing, I think that to me was, you know, of all the information that came out of those that Wall Street Journal series and everyone should go read it. It's really fantastically done and incredible reporting. The teenage girl data was just shocking because I've always known it, but to see it from their internal sources and, you know, was, was Mm -hmm. mind blowing where they literally said a third of girls, young girls on the platform uh, and women uh, have body images and feel sad and, and all these different things because of the thing that they're making. And I wonder, like, let's just say, let's just change the word social media. Let's if you took that, that wall street journal story and you did a search replace for Facebook and Twitter and social media with the word cigarettes, it would be mm-hmm. just chaos. People would be like up oh, and wait, a third of it's like killing our kids. We've got to stop this. It's like what, but because it's kind of this innocuous, like little digital thing, it doesn't, it doesn't have any impact. And sure. Facebook said this week that they're going to yeah. pause making Instagram kids, you know, for now, but I guarantee have yeah. me back on the podcast in a year and it'll be out. You know, it's like it's yeah. Pause. They're pause going to it. pause exactly. until this, until this blows, blows over, and 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 then they're going to put yeah. it back out there again. Um I think that the the responsibility really falls on the individual at this point because we can't trust the corporations to to do the right thing, and we can't trust the government to do the right thing, and we can't trust. I, mean, I actually thought that Kamala Harris because she's actually very astute around these things. I thought she was going to actually take this on and I don't haven't seen it um, happen. She was, you know, I worked with her on some stories I did years ago about Google and, and Apple uh, and some privacy issues that she literally took on and, and changed. And I thought that she was going to try to do the same thing when it came to these social media sites. And, and it hasn't happened. And Biden is way too old to even understand it.
1: Right. Well, as you pointed out, you're talking to, you're talking about, you know, political figures and looking to them for some sort of counter lever of power to kind of contain or or regulate these people. But they're, uh, you know, compared to the the tech giants, they're like, you know, they have the GDP of, a, of their own country and they operate almost outside of the law. Uh, I don't know if you caught uh, by the time this podcast comes out. Maybe many people will have read it and uh, made their summation of it, but uh, Ross Douthat, the conservative columnist in the, in the Times this week, he's, uh, he, he was very articulate in the way he kind of condensed some of the themes that you and I are talking about. But he says, our internet behemoths are effectively immense media companies pretending to be neutral platforms, feasting on the revenue that once sustained the old media ecosystem while disclaiming normal forms of editorial responsibility. And I thought that was an interesting way to put it because, you know, uh, one of the things that came out in the Facebook documents that uh, while they are pretending to be neutral and disclaiming editorial responsibility, they are also actually, in fact, uh, helping uh, this certain group of influencers and people with, who make their business uh, better, uh, famous people, powerful people, uh, giving them uh, more freedom on the platform to get away with more things. Trump being, you know, uh, number one for a long time. They they call this the white list, right? The list of people who can get away with whatever they it's want. not a small list on Facebook and Instagram.
0: It is it is five point one million, I think, something like that.
1: Wow. So so they have their finger on the scales here, and and as you said, that puts us in the in the situation of being the ones responsible. And and in fact, uh, Ross that goes on to say, we can try to seal off. Uh, And he's talking about children. We can try to seal off more of childhood and adolescence from social media's reach. Well, that's where it gets just to be, you know. It is back on us. And at the top of this, I talked about my own little addictive moment there, right, where I lost my uh, own self restraint. Mm -hmm. Right, and uh, you talk about cigarettes. You talk about, and I mean, the phone itself is like a cigarette too. It's like the whole thing, right, with all the apps on it and social media. And so, like, in, in parents, I know that there are parents out here listening to this who, who are, would be familiar with this. Is like you're telling your children one thing, and they're looking at you, and you're doing the opposite. Yeah. yeah, Right? Because you're working, right? And as a journalist, of course, I'm almost, like, professionally obligated to be, like, looking at the news and pretending to be, like, completely on top of every little, you know, beat. Um, but then I'm telling my children, don't do that in your own version yeah. Yeah. of it. Right? Um. And it's, uh, it's incredibly frustrating. And, but do you think, and I, I want to ask you about this because you did a documentary called uh, Fake Famous, which is about influencers and which is really the kind of extreme sports version of this, right? It's like, um, uh, it's like the desire for affirmation that social media fame. Uh, inspires the neat. Yeah. You know, this is like people doing it almost as careers and they just, they're all in basically. Um, And you kind of came away with that. And you were on this podcast a few months ago. We talked about this and you've said it here today, but how that opened up your eyes to how truly kind of evil this shit is, right? The the, the social media. And and you have a four-year-old. What are you going to do when they're saying to you,
0: every kid at school is doing it. We all want to connect. I feel lonely. I have a six-year-old and he came home couple months ago and said uh hey um i can i get a cell phone and i was like no you can't get a cell phone you're six years old and he was like well my friend has one and i was like i literally was like no your friend does not have a cell phone and it turned out the friend did have a cell phone and had gotten one at five years old and that's that's mind-blowing to me honestly but i think that the you know i like it's interesting so my wife and i are constantly getting into kind of debates and arguments about media consumption with our kids. And I always want to push the envelope and she always wants to pull it back. And, um, and we, so they, they're four and six and they watch essentially um, Curious George and like number blocks on Netflix, which is like teaches kids how to do numbers. And she always, it, she always says, you know, we're only watching something sweet. So once in a while, I'll like show them like the Incredibles and literally like, it's almost like they get handed a script with the, with the movie and they start beating each other up. And like, they're like, I'm going to be the bad guy. You're going to be the good guy. Let's fight. We're like, grab a weapon, you know? And yeah. (laughs) And, and so we inevitably don't show them uh, media like that. But what's been really interesting in this kind of experiment we've done is seeing the effects that the media does have on them at such a young age. And no matter what you show them, they will copy it. Uh, And, Um, And so we try to show them these like Curious George things and things like that that are that are kind and sweet and thoughtful and uh, don't include weapons of mass destruction and so on and so forth. And I can you can imagine how fast forward to being 12 years old and you're seeing on Instagram people that you're skinnier than you and more handsome and on a bigger private jet and whatever. Like, of course, it's going to have an impact on you. It's just it naturally is. And, yeah. and doing the documentary fake famous, you know, the thing that had started that was that I had read this article about how 97, 96% or something like that. I forget the actual number around 90% of kids in America today want to be famous influences more than anything else. And that's because they live in a world where that's what they see. And that's what they think is what is going to make them happy. And it's not, it's all fake. It's none of it's real. It's just all completely made up yeah. with fake bots. And I mean, look, did you see that? Did you read the article this week about um, Carlos Watson of Aussie media? No, tell me about it. So, uh, oh yeah, yes, ben, I did. OZY. O- yeah, o-
1: yeah,
0: so uh, Ben Smith of uh, the New York Times wrote it. So Aussie media is this former CNN columnist, um, uh, Carlos Watson started um and was looking to get funding from Goldman Sachs and, and had been faking what appears to be faking the numbers for the clicks on YouTube, and they're claiming that they had 25 million subscribers to their newsletter that no one I know on planet Earth reads, and 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 they had been caught before faking the numbers on their uh, YouTube views by buying fake clicks and fake views and fake comments, and they went as far as to fake a YouTube executive being on a call with Goldman Sachs by using one of those voice changing things, and yeah, and. Yeah. It's like they screwed up because they did a pretty terrible, pathetic job at, at their lie, but it's so easy to fake anything. And all people are doing on the internet is faking it. It's just all it is across the board. And uh, and it has a huge negative impact on our kids. And I think I'm bringing this back to where I started this part of the conversation, we have made the the, the choice to, I don't, my kids don't play with my phone. They don't use my iPad. Like they don't, I I wouldn't let them alone with YouTube. I'd rather let them alone with a weapon than you. It's like, you know, and it's like, it's incredibly dangerous stuff. And I, I wouldn't actually let them alone with a weapon, but you get my point. But I feel like we (laughs) as parents have a, the most responsibility to ensure that we protect them from the the media consumption that's out there because no one else is going to do it.
1: As you were saying all those things, you had another I was thinking, tweet well, go viral. <laughs> I, I, I wish. I, no, I don't wish. I, but, you know, what we're describing is children. But we are children too. Oh, completely. And we have acted like children, and this whole country is like a, a bunch of children. I, it, it, it occurred to me – I read this – there's a column that's made a lot of noise this week by Robert Kagan. It was a column in the Washington Post. He's a foreign policy thinker, and it was a very alarmist story about you know, how Trump is going to – and his minions in, in state legislatures and in the federal government are going to work to kind of like – Reposition him for the presidency again and then this time kind of like crush, you know, voting rights absolutely and retake power and become a fascist state. And the way that Trump, you know, we've said this before and it's a cliche, but he's really the kind of um, concentrated kind of uh, outcome of a lot of the way social media has reshaped our politics and the conversation in this country. And his ability to make fake reality through social media and through other platforms has allowed him to reshape our body politic and reshape our whole you know, conversation in this country. I, I want to read this. Chris Hayes, this MSNBC anchor, wrote a piece in The New Yorker. I didn't even know he was a guy that wrote for The New Yorker, but he is. He wrote a piece about the internet. And I just want to quote it. He said everyone is losing their minds online because the combination of mass fame and mass surveillance increasingly channels our most basic impulses toward loving and being loved, caring for and being cared for, getting the people we know to laugh at our jokes, into the project of impressing strangers, a project that cannot by definition sate our desires but feels close enough to real human connection that we cannot but pursue it in ever more compulsive ways." And, you know, he's talking here about misidentifying the, the affirmation of the Internet with actual human interaction, right? But that has expanded out and cascaded into how people feel about the way society should be structured and the way politics should go down and what's true and what isn't, right? People who don't believe in the vaccine feel connected to one another. And that has allowed Trump and people like him to make them a constituency and turn them into a hammer. Right. I mean, this is like, and I only say that all to point, circle back to the original point that I made to you, which is that uh, in the face of this technology, we are all made into infantilized and turned into children
0: who have impulse control. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think that what's it, what's, you know, I, I, I've, I may have said this before on this podcast at some point, um, but I'll say it again because it's something I think about a lot is I do you remember that movie War Games. Um, I do and yeah. there's Matthew Broderick Matthew Broderick and there's the game the movie for anyone who is young enough to not know it uh, on this podcast uh, <laughs> essentially it's a uh, uh, Matthew Broderick plays this hacker who thinks he's playing a game with a computer and it turns out he's playing a game with like his NORAD or something and he may have just launched yeah. a nuclear strike against Russia which in turn is going to launch on back and so on. And it turns out that there's this algorithm that has been created by this genius, you know, mathematician Mm -hmm. who has played out the scenario of of how a nuclear attack could be won. And Matthew Broderick realizes in the process of of playing the game uh, that the computer has the solution to who can win. And the, the, the computer says the only way to win this game is to not play at all because everyone will lose and i think th- i think about that line a lot when it comes to to technology today i think that the technology is way more advanced than we are it knows us better than we know ourselves virality is an ex- a perfect example of that the algorithms serve up the thing, the extreme version of the thing that we click on uh and it continues to serve that up and whether you're on youtube and it's the youtube recommendation engine or you're on amazon and it's the and it's the book recommendation or you're on Twitter or Instagram, especially with their, you know, um, recommendations. And it draws us in and it it really hurts our brains. Like it really fucks us up. And and I've come to the conclusion that the only way to play the game is to, the only way to win is to not play the game at all. And, and so for me personally, I will not go to YouTube and look at the recommendation engine. I'll go and I'll look for things I want to look for and that's it. I will not... I try not to click on the Instagram. I don't really post on Instagram anymore, but when I you know do look, I try not to click on that because it just makes you feel like shit and it and it's it's going to show you a better version of your life. It's going to show you a better version of you that you'll never attain to and and I just don't think you can win that game. And so you just can't play it. Right. And the challenge is teaching your kids that. Oh, well that's
1: and that is the uh, you know, As Ross Tooth also said, this is a generational project, Yeah, right? This is a project that we are – you and I having this conversation right now, people listening, people thinking about it, and constantly thinking about it is the way that we're going to get from one thing to the other. We have to educate ourselves constantly about what this means and then also become aware of our own impulses. You know, oh, I look over here every time and I see these suggestions and I'm like a rat who just like wants another pellet and clicks over here. So. Don't be the rat, right? How can I not be a rat? I need to have impulse control. I need to be more self-aware and conscious of what I'm doing. Completely. Well, I hope that uh, in the course of this conversation, our listeners uh, will themselves think about that. My wife, she just uh, erased her Facebook account this week. So for every person in the house who's doing the wrong thing,
0: myself, (laughs) there's at least one person
1: doing the right thing.
0: (laughs) Uh, Good for her. I you know I mean, good, good for her, yeah, good for her, I think my my wife did the same thing and then accident and then uh regretted it because she deleted some photos but but I don't use it i mean i <laughs> yeah. I still have one yeah. because of like for work and just for reporting, and you know, but I don't yeah. I, I, God, I can't remember the last time I posted on facebook and yeah and i I think my my hope is that you know i there's a guy I knew who worked at YouTube who was a big exec there, and he told me this story about how back when you know, Q and, and all this like conspiracy stuff was starting out years and years ago. They knew about it. They like just didn't do anything. They didn't, re- they didn't change anything. They just they ignored it and just kept along their happy way and whatnot. And even though like they, they came up in meetings and whatnot. And then there was something that happened where there was like, I don't know, something really bad happening with some videos that kids were seeing. And it, it came to light in the media. And I believe it was Johnson and Johnson. I don't remember exactly who the advertiser was. It was a, it was a big advertiser like that, uh, was like, we can't be, we can't advertise next to that. And so they pulled their ads and it ended up costing YouTube hundreds of millions of dollars and they quickly changed everything and fixed it. And this guy ended up leaving YouTube, but told me the story about the only things he said, you know, there's only two ways you change this. One is if there's enough of an uproar that leads advertisers to, to pull. So it's a financial incentive. Uh, and anyone still advertising on Facebook, there's no, you know, they've, they've, they've already picked their poison at this point. But the other way is is for the users. And if the users stop engaging with the platform, they have to change it. This is what happened to bring this back to the very beginning of our conversation. Twitter user numbers were going down because people felt like shit when they used the platform and it made them feel bad. And they first tried to fake it. They got caught doing that. And then they actually started trying to make the platform better. And while I still think it's an incredibly vitriolic place to go and spend your time, they have done the work. Some of they've started the work to try to make it a a less vitriolic place. They hide like heavy criticism. They have filters. They, you know, they surface things that are are less negative and more positive and things like that. It's still got a million issues, but I think that, you know, if we want to see the, the change we want to see in this world, like it's kind of on us to do it. Absolutely. I'm waiting to, uh, and maybe I'm waiting for the wrong thing, but you know,
1: either in the form of a person, a manifesto or a, or a meme, for instance, some, some, person who or idea that comes along that turns people against it or more likely, leads people to want to improve their lives by handling it more responsibly. Like there needs to be some guideposts that we create and that we popularize outside of them because as you say, they're never going to do it exactly the way it should be done because they have motivations that are money. So like on some level, Somebody has to kind of like popularize it, make it into a revolution that no, it, you take it, your life back.
0: But it is, but you, the only way to do, I think like you just do it. If I, if I don't just click do on it. Instagram, if I spend 20 minutes a day on Instagram, if I just choose to spend zero minutes a day on Instagram, that's 20 less minutes a day that they get to say people spend on their app. If that times that by a thousand times it by a million times it by ten million, oh, we have a problem where we can't tell advertisers that people spend a collective 265 million hours a minute on our app, we got to, we got to fix something. Uh, and I, I, it, I truly believe it's up to us to do it. Yeah. But we would have to do it in mass as I'm saying, because but I do think to be it, I do nova- think it, it look at Twitter. It happened. People were so fed up with that platform that people who had been on there for 10 years were literally becoming, they weren't even, their daily active users went down their monthly active users went down right these are people who had been on the platform forever and so it got to a point where it was so bad that they had to do something and at first they tried to lie and then they now have tried to fix the platform and so i think that i think instagram's probably a year out from that in my personal opinion um because everyone you talk to they're like oh it makes me feel bad
1: yeah well, I have noticed uh, over the last many years that the – or the last couple at least – um, that the number of trolls have gone down generally mm-hmm. in my feed. And, uh, there They're has still been there. Like you just don't less... see them. Yeah, I blocked them out, I guess. But here's what I'm going to do just as a stunt here. Um, I want you to tell me uh, – give me some guidelines on what I should do on Twitter starting now. I tweeted this today. I tweet, you know, so I'm still at it. Uh, This morning I tweeted, uh, ah, Twitter, whenever I need a dose of we're so fucked, that we're so fucked feeling, you deliver, right? (laughs) And because I still go there to feel bad. Yes. Right. But uh, so, but let me just start uh, with my own behavior. Let me start with me.
0: What do you suggest I do? Should I? So I suggest you do two things. I, I suggest that I genuinely, I've been through this and I've done it and it works um, you should delete the app from your phone for just a couple of weeks. You can still look at it yeah. on your computer. It's not as an enjoyable as an experience, which is why you won't spend as much time on it. Literally delete it from your phone for uh, and tell yourself, I'm not going to install it for a couple of weeks. You will have this thing happen where you'll, you'll click. You're doing it right now. I feel like this I is just now turning into I a therapy did- session. Everyone listening, do, do the same thing. <laughs> Delete Instagram do from it. your phone. And now here's something that's really interesting. I've done so much research. That's hard. That's big, a tough one. But here's but here's the thing that you need to do. You can still log in on your computer, right? You're just not going to spend as much time on them, on these platforms on your computer because the, the user interface is not as good for a for, for mobile experience. And that scrolling like paperback like feeling. You will immediately pick up your phone after we get up this podcast and you'll go and you'll press in the place where the Twitter logo was. And your brain is, it's just like, it's muscle memory. So what I did, yeah. uh, and I spoke to like a neuroscientist about this and uh, he explained the whole thing. What I did was I put the Kindle app in the place of where the Twitter app was and uh, downloaded some like short story books and things like that. And so then I, I scrolled through those. Um, and so you kind of create this thing. When you go back on to, and you redownload it in a couple of weeks when you've like said, okay, I don't need to waste my time on this thing every five minutes. Uh, you should go into your settings on your phone and create an app limit of like five minutes a day or 10 minutes, whatever it is the numbers that you you feel comfortable with. And uh, you've, you can go in now and see what those settings are to see how much you use it now. And then it'll give you an update and it'll tell you like, okay, you spent 10 minutes a day. So I did this. I deleted it from my phone for actually quite a long, I've deleted it many times, but the the last time was for like nine months. It was off my phone. And now I put it back on and I just don't use it as much. I pop in I look for a couple of minutes, see if there's any new stuff. And I pop right out. And that's, you reprogrammed yourself. You have to, you have to reprogram. You have to like hack yourself to make it work. So um I like that that's idea. my advice so you'll you'll have me back on uh, in a few months and we'll we'll revisit where you are with all this well yeah i would i would like that I, well I'm going to try to uh
1: I, you know while we were sitting here just to be uh completely you know to fulfill uh my promise because you, having you here is the pressure I needed, so I did just delete them both right and in two weeks we'll see where I'm at, whether I can stand it Instagram's a tough
0: one because you know that's like a, a such an easy scroll that's such an know? easy scroll, which is why you need to replace it. With a good book.
1: Okay, well, listen, I'm going to let you go, Nick Bilton, but I want to tell you, are you reading any good books that you can suggest to, uh, to the listeners?
0: I'm reading a bunch of books right now on like Afghanistan and, you know, the Afghanistan paper, Steve Cole's book uh, about um, the secret war. I'm reading one of my favorite writers, Alan Lightman. Uh, he wrote Einstein's Dreams. He uh, he has a new book out on the, like the, the neuroscience of mystery, which I've been reading. Um, but I need a really good novel to get my, my head into. So if anyone has one, hit me up.
1: This is uh, probably not as lofty as some uh, some other uh, works of literature, but I'm reading uh, The Novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino, and it oh, is wow. one of the most fabulously entertaining things I've read in recent memory. Uh, and to counterbalance that so I don't become a complete, uh, you know, pulp fiction reader, uh, I've been reading uh, On Freedom by Maggie Nelson, which I highly recommend. Cool. So that is... What we're going to say today, we've, we've done our, as best we can to help you uh, out there <laughs> in podcast land. We're trying to help you out, you know. Uh, and thanks, Nick, for, uh, for helping me. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And so have a great and fine week. And uh, we will see you, dear listener, here next week when Emily Jane Fox, your regular co-host, returns. And that's our podcast this week. I'd like to thank Nick Bilton, the OG, for coming back on the podcast next week. Emily Jane Fox, the return of Emily Jane Fox. She's coming back. Thanks to producer Brett Fuchs. Thanks to Cadence 13, who helped make this podcast happen. If you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe. Come back week after week. Please support our sponsors the way they support this podcast. And we will see you
0: next week.